Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Well, we're so glad that you're joining us here in this beautiful summer day, on the summer day, whether you're here at Ajax or in Port Perry or beyond in Bowmanville or at a cottage, welcome. If I was invited to your home, if you actually were not living in an apartment or a condo, but in a home, and you said that you'd like me to come over, we would all understand culturally that there is usually one assigned door that I'm allowed in. It's usually the designated one is the front door. And so if I come to the front door, I tend to knock or ring the doorbell, and then you have the right or, or you can choose not to invite me in. You open the door and let me in. Now, if I arrived at your home, even if I was your friend, and put up a ladder against your home and started breaking into your child's bedroom, you would be either totally baffled or calling 911, friend or not. If I walked through the back of your door, the back of your house, and started banging on the back of your door the, it, to connect it to your kitchen or wherever it might be and tried breaking in, again, you'd be not understanding why you're doing this. If I came to your basement window and I started smashing it and, and I just, well, I needed to come in and I thought this way would be fine, you'd be like, what type of friend are you? Now, we all understand this. In our culture, we understand there is a door. It's a designated door. There's one door, and I have the right to let you in or not let you in. And all the other places are not permittable without permission. And yet, when it comes to spirituality, it comes to religion, it comes to everything we're going to talk about today, for some reason, we think as human beings, when it comes to God and encountering Him, it's choose your own adventure. I can walk in any door I want. I can choose any window I want. I have the right to determine what door I walk through. And God comes along and says, no, it isn't choose your own adventure. Just like your house, there aren't many doors to walk through. There's one. And, and when we talk through this today, it is going to be so important that we hear this and understand this. And like I said in week one, we, we are walking through eight amazing statements Images, visual aids given to Jesus are said by Jesus himself. And if you're a seeker or you're a skeptic or you're a cultural Christian or you're from another religion or you're mindful or you're spiritual, by the end of the summer you'll be able to understand what Jesus fully claimed about himself and you'll be able to say yes or no. For others that actually claim to follow Jesus and believe in Jesus and follow Jesus, hopefully you'll see him more, love him more and be more thankful, maybe inspired, faith-filled, even hopeful. Now, seven times Jesus says, I am, and then connects it with an image. And so far we walk through when John said, Jesus is the word. And then Jesus claims, I'm the bread of life. And then he claimed, I am the light of the world. Now we get to this really interesting odd image where Jesus says, I am the door or I am the gate. But to understand the phrase, I am the door or I am the gate, you actually need to start with last week's claim that we were talking about in John 8. I am the light of the world, Jesus said. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now when we started talking through this, the, we found out that this claim was shocking. Not a light, not one light. Not one light of many. He said, I am the light of the world. I have the power to banish darkness in any family or any ethnic group. My ability is universal and it's all powerful. And notice the implication. If he is light and he's the only light, the implication is all of us are in darkness. And we actually all need light. And then we started realizing where Jesus was saying this. Jesus was saying this 
2,000 years ago on the Jewish temple grounds, and every single person walking around Jesus at that point would already believe that they had light because they were Jews or had converted to Judaism, and they had the Bible, and they weren't like Greeks or Romans or what they used to call barbarians. We know God. We're full of light, right? But Jesus says, no, actually, you're all in darkness too. Light only comes through me. And then we realized when we just thought about light, whether a flashlight or a campfire or, or the sun or a, a light on an airplane, where, where, wherever you see light, light doesn't naturally come from humans. There is no light naturally in a human being. Light always comes from the outside. In other words, what we know physically is true spiritually. Light always has to come from another source. It's not naturally in us. So Jesus walks up and says, oh, by the way, the only way, the only way not to walk in darkness anymore, in the fullest sense, is to meet and follow me because I, I am the light of the world. And then there was like that oh my goodness moment for us who were here because then we realized when and where Jesus actually declared, I am the light of the world. And let me quote that, that scholar from last week. Jesus' claim that he was the light of the world happened on the day following a spectacular nighttime ceremony done by the Jews known as the illumination of the temple, which took place in the temple treasury before four massive golden candelabras were topped with huge torches and were lit. Eyewitnesses, multiple eyewitnesses 2,000 years ago said that huge flames would leap from these torches and illuminate not just the temple, but all of Jerusalem. The whole city would be lit up at night by these four candelabras. And this was a Jewish celebration of God being the pillar of cloud and fire during the time of Moses. So Jesus comes along and declares he's the light of the world, done in the temple treasury on the following morning, watching the charred torches still in the place. And Jesus lifts up his voice and says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And the person read, wrote, there could not scarcely be a more emphatic way to announce one of the most supreme truths of Jesus' existence. Jesus was saying, in effect, the pillar of fire and cloud that came between you and the Egyptians and the cloud that guided you by day and illuminated the night and the same fire and presence that enveloped Moses' tabernacle and filled Solomon's temple, well, that's me, everybody. And if you're not seeing it, let me bring it home. Jesus, the son of a carpenter at 32 or 33 years old, from the backwater of nowhere in Israel, is claiming that he is God. Remember when Moses met God at the burning bush? Maybe you know the story. He walks up to the burning bush, and he sees a bush on fire, but the bush, bush is not consumed. So he says, this is really weird. He was a shepherd at this point. He comes forward, and the bush continues to burn, but the bush remains. And then he realizes it's supernatural, and then he knows God is there, and he takes his shoes off. And as he's talking to God face-to-face, -face, really for the first time, he says, and what should I call you? And God says, I am that I am. And now Jesus, thousands of years later, is saying, I am the bread of life, and I am the light of the world, and I am the gate, and I am the door, and I, I am the vine. In other words, he's claiming to be creator, not beside, equal, personal, connected. And then so no one's missing it. We all found this out at the end of last week. Jesus just keeps going, not backing down. He says in John eight fifty six, speaking to the pastors, the Pharisees of the day, he says, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and, oh, he was glad. You're not even 50 years old, they said to Jesus. And you, you've seen Abraham? 
Very truly I tell you, before Abraham was born, what? I am. And immediately at this, they picked up stones to stone him to death. But Jesus hid himself, slipping from the temple grounds. Why did they try taking out Jesus? Because at that moment in history, the religious law said, if you claim to be God and you were not God, that's blasphemy. And the penalty was capital punishment. Jesus is not hiding the fact. He is claiming to be God himself. Now the story continues. You've got a Bible today. You can turn to John 9. Virtual or physical is great. Because the story goes from chapter 8 to 9 to 10, logically, but they're all interconnected. And before we get to Jesus' next grand claim, I am the door or I am the gate, something happens to tie both claims together. See, Jesus chooses now at this moment to do a miracle under God the Father's direction to demonstrate in the physical what he's doing in the spiritual. And never forget this. Miracles are not important in themselves. Miracles are always supposed to point you to the one who's doing the miracle working. So ready? Watch this. John 9.1. As Jesus went along, so they try murdering him. He somehow evades them. And now he's walking along. He saw a blind man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, teacher, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. Now we're all going, whoa, that is really inappropriate. But 2,000 years ago, within the Jewish religious worldview, any person who was born with a physical ailment or deformity was an outward symbol of God's displeasure on that family. And so if you couldn't have children, that was an obvious sign that actually God was upset with you. And if you were born blind, the very first thing people asked, well, did this guy sin or did his parents sin? Because obviously God has judged them because this has happened to them. But they were wrong. They had actually taken the overarching results of sin and made it too personal. So what does Jesus say? Well, he says something that brings us sort of comfort and actually disturbs us even more. Oh, neither this man or his parents sinned. But this happened so the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as stay, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, what? I am the light of the world. So Jesus walks up. If you read the story, it's pretty wild. Does some really weird things. <laughs> and he heals the man. This man who has never seen ever. He's never seen light. He's seen nothing. Suddenly can see. Jesus is literally demonstrating in the physical what he can do in the spiritual. This man who was born blind, born in darkness, is now able to see because of the light of the world. So the man is healed. It's amazing. He's sort of shocked. People are talking. Neighbors start coming over and saying, is that you? Oh my goodness, that is you. How, what? I've known you since you were born. How can you see? And this is how he responds. They say, well, how did your eyes open? He says, that man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. Not a spa moment, by the way. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I washed and then I could see. Oh, I know it's weird and I have no clue what's really going on. But that Jesus guy everyone's talking about, he basically put mud on my eyes and now I can see. Go talk to him. Well, the story continues because the pastors of the day hear this healing has taken place. And they now get involved because they know that Jesus is dangerous. He's claiming to be God, and, and he's a threat. So either he's evil, unhinged, deranged, a false prophet, or Satan himself. And miracle or not, Jesus now needs to be stopped. So what do they do? They bring the blind man in, and even his parents, to interview him. And it goes really, really bad. It reads like this in John 9, 26. Then they asked him, 
What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered, I've already told you already, and you're not listening. Do you want to hear it again? Maybe you want to become his disciples too. They hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We're disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that's remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. He listens to the, to the godly person who does his will. No one has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man who was born blind. If this man was not from God, he could do nothing. And they replied, you're steeped in sin at birth. We know why actually you were born blind, because you or your parents have screwed up big time. How dare you lecture us? Don't you know who we are? We, we're, we're the PhDs in the Bible. We're the pastors of the day. We represent God. You're nothing but a little sinner. And they what? Threw him out. So the man, to put it in our equivalent today, the man is kicked out of church for testifying that God actually showed up. The man says, this was God's work and my life has changed. And, and I don't know what to tell you. It's darkness for light. And, and Jesus actually did this. Now, here's the connection between last week's claim, I'm the light of the world, and this week's claim, I am the door. Everyone ready? Some religious leaders run into Jesus a few moments later, after the healing, and after the expulsion. And Jesus does not back down. Jesus does not agree to disagree. Jesus does not give up. And Jesus does not walk away. And this is what Jesus says to the religious leaders of the day. Verse 39. For judgment I have come into this world. So that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Now some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are you saying we're blind too? And Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim to be see, see now you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Okay, let me get this again. Remember, he's saying this to a group of Orthodox Jewish leaders. They've spent their life studying the Bible. Most of them have it all memorized. They're honest. They were considered the best pastors of the day. Most people actually really like these people. They have the Bible. They don't worship idols. They're trying to keep the Ten Commandments. They're so serious about their faith, they invented 713 other laws not found in the Bible, so you don't even get close to breaking them, and they're trying to keep all of those laws. They try to obey God in the temple ritual, and Jesus is basically saying to the most knowledgeable, most religious people of the day, if you knew me, you'd know my father. Religious leaders, here's the simple breakdown. I'm the light of the world, and I've decided, and I'm declaring that you're blind and you're in darkness. But not only that, I'm also about to charge you with something worse. I'm about to tell you you are false shepherds, you're thieves, and you're robbers. How to win friends. <laughs> and it's at this moment that Jesus begins his last public address before actually he gets crucified. So from light of the world to the healing of a man born blind to the calling of the most sincere people sincerely wrong, then he says in the same breath, after he says you're still blind and your sin still remains and you're still guilty, then he says, the very next thing he says to them, same conversation, John 10, 1. Very truly I tell you Pharisees, you pastors, Anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, oh, but climbs in by some other way, they're a thief and they're a robber. 
Now, to the Jewish mind, and if you read the Old Testament, the images of sheep and shepherds and doors and gates are everywhere. God's people historically were nomadic at the beginning. Their way of life and economics was connected to herding. And even at this moment, much of the economy was still was connected that way. I, I mean, it's foreign to us, but it's not foreign then. God himself is even called a shepherd. Psalm 81, hear a shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph, God's people, like a flock, you who sit enthroned between the angels, the cherubim shine forth. Or Psalm 23, for, for the Lord is my what? Shepherd. Or, or, or even God's people are called sheep. Psalm 103, know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us. We are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. But not just God and not just God's chosen people. Actually, all of humanity are called sheep in the Bible. And the image is actually used because of our sin problem and our walking away problem and our rebellion problem and our brokenness problem. Isaiah 53, 6. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our, notice this phrase, our own way. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Most of us here probably didn't grow up around farms or on farms. Some of you did. The, the best thing we've got going for us is petting zoos. That's our great experience. But anyone within the sound of my voice that knows sheep or talk to anyone who actually deals with sheep all the time, they will absolutely concur with this image that sheep are a great idea to talk about the human condition. Why? Because sheep are so stupid. Time and time again, sheep are called dumb. They have limited intelligence. Pigs are very smart. Sheep are not. They're all about habit, by the way. They have no creativity at all. They get in trouble all the time, and they wander everywhere. Uh, many call them this, and I love this description. Many call sheep timid, stubborn, frightened, and rebellious all at once. Can I say that again? You're timid, and you're frightened, and you're rebellious, and you're stubborn all at the same time. Sheep are utterly defenseless. They get lost all the time. There are multiple accounts of sheep so excited about the grass they are eating, they walk right into live fire and are burned alive. Barbecue unexpectedly. Many sheep fall right off cliffs because they're so not aware. They fall over all the time and they cannot get up. One person who was a, was a shepherd for years and also was a Christian wrote this. He says, even the largest and the fattest and the strongest and the healthiest sheep sometimes can become cast and become a casualty. This is what happens. A heavy, fat, or long fleece sheep will lie down comfortably in some hollow or depression in the ground and it will roll on its side slightly to stretch out and relax. Suddenly the center of gravity in the body shifts so much that it, it actually cannot turn back and now its feet can no longer touch the ground. It suddenly begins to panic and begins to paw frantically, which makes things worse because it sh shifts the center of gravity. And now it is impossible, it is impossible for the sheep to grain its feet. In other words, it is now fully on its back, its legs are sticking up, and if someone does not actually come and turn the sheep back over, it will literally die on its back. Now some of you are like, John, you're, you're, you're really insulting me. You just said I'm stupid. We're all stupid, and I'm not like sheep, and actually, oh, no, 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 hold on. Let's have an honest moment on this beautiful July, July uh, summer Sunday. I think the description of sheep is brilliant for all of us, no matter how much education, no matter your cultural background. I think that we're all timid, stubborn, frightened, and rebellious, and we go to places we should not go, and we get lost all the time. Think about your thought life in the last seven days. How sheep-like were you? 
Think about your online history for the last year. How many places did you go that you were not? How many times did you walk into live fire and you shouldn't have? Think about your family life. Think about your work life. Think about all we do for entertainment. We absolutely as human beings, though we are lovely and loved, we are still profoundly like sheep. We've all gone astray. So Jesus comes along and says, well, let me talk about sheeps and gates and shepherds and make this all right. I tell you, you Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate and climbs in some other way, they're a thief and a robber. Now again, still most of us are lost, sheep pen, gate, what does it mean? Well, in this part of the world, sheep and goats were guarded in walled enclosures open to the sky and had solid walls around them. This was to guard the sheep from animals and also to guard them from being stolen. There were corrals outside in the pastures, and then if you went into a city, there were larger corrals built into the side of homes, and multiple flocks would be in one corral. And the pens were guarded by a gatekeeper. These pens had one entrance, they had one way in and one way out. So if one would try to climb over the wall, in other words, if you tried to avoid the gate or get by the gatekeeper, you obviously were there to steal sheep or your trouble. So then we need to ask the question, okay, well, who's the door and who's the shepherd and who's the robber? And Jesus says, verse 2, the one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. So the one that enters the pen in the right way is the shepherd, is the true shepherd, actually is not just a good shepherd like we'll find out next week, but is the owner. And Jesus keeps going. And the gatekeeper opens the gate for him. So now there's a gatekeeper. Well, who's that? Well, again, the original audience would be like, oh, we totally get this. The gatekeeper was an associate or lesser shepherd. They were hireling shepherds. They'd recognize the owner, the true shepherd, and they would work for him. Now, again, if you're not catching this, Jesus is setting up this whole environment for a big fight. The religious leaders don't recognize Jesus. So Jesus is saying to them, you're not real gatekeepers. And actually, I'm the true shepherd, and you're blocking me from my sheep. You think you own the sheep, but actually I own the sheep, so you're a thief and a robber, but they're going to say, no, you're a thief and a robber. Well, the gatekeeper opens the gate for him, he says, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls for his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. And when he's brought them all out, all of his own on his out, when he brought out all of his own, he goes ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. Now, I didn't know this, but in this moment and still today, most shepherds name every single one of their sheep. Personally, long nose, fluffy, fatty, whatever it is. But not only does he name them, he also teaches them his voice. Another talking about this outlined his experience when he was sitting outside of Jericho a few years ago. And he saw this for the first time as a city person. He says, Near Eastern shepherds never drive their flocks from behind like they do in the West. They walk in front of their sheep. They always walk at the head, leading them along roads and over hills to new pasture. And as the shepherd goes, he'll begin to talk to goats or sheep in a sing-song voice using a weird language unlike anything I'd ever heard in my life. The first time hearing the sheep or goat language, I was in the hills of the back of Jericho. A goat herder had just descended into the valley, and the shepherd was mounting a slope on the opposite hill. He turned around and spoke to his goats, and even though the herd remained behind to devour a rich scrub... No sooner than he had spoken, there was sort of a bleat that shivered right across the herd. One or two animals looked up towards him, but no one moved. The goat herder then called out, and he gave one word, giving a laugh, laughing kind of whinny. Immediately, a goat with a bell around its neck stopped eating, left the herd, and started trotting across the valley and up the opposite slope with the shepherd. 
But the others, no one moved. They're still eating. But then as they kept walking, very soon, suddenly panic broke out in the herd because they had not obeyed the shepherd and they didn't know where he was and they looked up for the shepherd and they could not see. And the guy's observing this, literally watching the, the goats begin to panic. And, and now he's not seen. And then from a distance, he writes, came that strange laughing call of the shepherd. And at the sound of that voice, immediately the whole herd lifted their heads, walked in that direction, and then ran to the shepherd. This was so common. This was everywhere. And Jesus is saying, those who follow me know my voice. And I'm actually the real shepherd. And they're not going to follow your voice because actually you're not a real shepherd. They'll never follow a stranger. In fact, they'll run away from him. They don't recognize the stranger's voice. And Jesus used this figure of speech. And the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Okay, back to the pens for a moment in the cities. Remember I told you that large pens had been built and, and all sorts of flocks could share a pen. And as I was reading it this week, I said, well, how in the world would they sort out who owned what sheep? And the answer every single person said is a shepherd would walk into the gate through the gate, into the pen, and would use his call, and every sheep or goat, if they're goat herders, that knew his voice would follow him out, and that's how they would distinguish who owned what. Now, the pastors of the day, they don't get it. This is incredibly serious. Jesus is saying they're blind. They're false gatekeepers. They don't know God, and God, who's called the great shepherd, isn't their father, and actually, they're stopping the true owner from having, being with his sheep. But then he goes farther. Jesus said, very truly I tell you, I'm the gate for the sheep. So Jesus goes a step farther. Now he says, I'm not only the owner of the sheep, I'm not only the good shepherd, I'm actually the gate. Now so much more is uh, meeting the eye than we would catch here in 2019. A hundred years ago, one of the most famous Old Testament scholars in the world happened to be traveling through the Middle East and was started, started up a conversation with a young Arab shepherd and in this conversation, everything came to light for him. And hopefully, this now will come to light for you. He says, one day I was traveling with a guide and came across a shepherd and all his sheep. I fell into a conversation with him and the man showed me the fold where the sheep were led into at night. It had four walls and one way in. Sir George was his name, said, uh, that's where they go at night? Yes, said the shepherd. And when they're in there, they're perfectly safe, I asked. But, but there's no door, he pointed out. Oh, the shepherd smiled and said, well, of course, because I'm the door. Now, this man was not a Christian man. He was not speaking the language of a New Testament. He was just speaking from an Arab shepherd's, uh, shepherd's standpoint. So Sir George looked at him and said, what do you mean that you're the door? And the shepherd responded by saying, when the light is gone and all the sheep are inside, I actually lie in the open space. And no sheep ever goes across my body, and no one comes inside unless he crosses my body. I am the door of the sheep. Jesus comes along, under, everyone understood what he was saying. And he says, I'm the door. I'm the gate. There's only one door. There's only one way in, and there's one way out. He, as one wrote, Jesus is both provider and protector. And then Jesus does it in verse 8. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. Everyone who is coming before me, he's referring to the Jewish leaders at this moment, but think about all the brilliant religious minds that have come before Jesus. And Jesus says, nope, no. They actually cannot provide what they say they can. Now Jesus specifically is targeting these leaders because they're not doing their job, and this was predicted in 
Jeremiah 23. Woe to you shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares God. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to the shepherds of, that tend my people. Because of you have scattered my flocks and driven them away and not be bestowed care on them, I will bestow punishment on you for the evil you've done. And Jesus is saying, oh, I'm the fulfillment of that. Now, with all of that in mind, <laughs> I'm the light of the world, the ongoing conflict with those who think they know better, the healing of a blind man, with all the sheep and sheep metaphors and gates and doors, we now come to verse 9, where Jesus says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and they will go out and they will find pasture. There's only one door. You must enter through it or stay outside. You cannot say, give me another door. You cannot say, there will be another door. There, there, there's no way to seek God, to find God's people, to have forgiveness, to have eternal life, other than going through Jesus. And anyone that thinks they're a true shepherd must get their power, their authority, their message, and their permission from the true gate and the true door and the true shepherd. And if you claim to be a religious leader or a philosophical leader and you do not accept Jesus, then actually you are a thief and a robber and you are not connected to God. And notice again, one gate, one path, not many. Jesus is the voice of salvation. To get salvation, to guard salvation, to have salvation, Jesus says, well, me. When I was in Israel a few years ago, I was in Haifa. And at one of the top hills in Haifa is this gorgeous religious structure built by the Baha'i faith. And the Baha'i faith, if you know it, celebrates all the grand religions of the world. Every single one of their temples has nine walls representing the nine religions of the world. If you walk into any of their services, there's no preaching, there's no symbols. All they do is they read the texts of all the great religions. Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, the Baha'i faith, which they're part of, Hinduism, etc., and what they say is there are many paths and many doors and we're all going to get to God together. We all have just done it culturally different. Jesus comes along and says, there aren't nine doors. There aren't 20 doors. There, no, no, there's one. There, there is no other way to gain eternal life. There's no way to experience light. There's no way to get out of darkness. There's no way to be fed unless you meet the bread of life, the light of life, and the gate. It sounds right. It's like you see this all the time in Canada and probably in the States and beyond, the, the bumper sticker on the back of cars, coexist, have you seen that? And coexist, the, the words have, have all the different religious symbols. And, and, and now there's some beauty in that in the sense that I love that we live in our country where no one is prosecuted for what they believe. And that actually we should tolerate each other and we believe in the diversity of opinions. That is an amazing gift we should never give up. But that's not what that bumper sticker is saying. That bumper sticker is saying all religions are just a little different and they're all leading home. And Jesus comes along and says, no, no. There is not coexisting like that. There is one door and there is one gate and there is one bread factory and there is one light. I mean, this is what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. And everyone loves quoting the Sermon on the Mount. And people absolutely love quoting Jesus from other faiths or even as atheists or agnostics. They love the Sermon on the Mount, but they never get to chapter 7 where he says, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad that leads to, the, to destruction and many enter through it. The wide gate, roomy, broad, spacious, easy. One pastor said, there's plenty of room on this for a diversity of opinions and a laxity of morals. It's the road of tolerance and permissiveness. There's no curbs, no boundaries, no, no thoughts about your conduct. Travelers on this road follow their own inclinations. The desire for the human heart and its fallenness is accepted. 
Superficiality, no problem. Self-love, absolutely. Hypocrisy, great. Mechanical religion, awesome. Self-ambition, none of these things have to be learned or cultivated, by the way. They're just natural to us. Oh, but you need effort to resist them. No effort is required to practice these things at all. That's why the broad road is easy. And Jesus says it leads to destruction. And he's talking about the afterlife, by the way. And Jesus declares almost all people that have ever existed or will exist will always go through the wide gate. They'll defend it, they'll cherish it, they'll love it, they'll support it, they'll promote it. It's roomy, it's broad, it's spacious, it makes so much sense, it feels so, much, it feels so right. I mean, we can't all be wrong, right? I mean, so many good religions out there and, and so many good perspectives. Can't we just give peace a chance? Imagine there's no heaven, right? No. Jesus says, small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life and only a few people will find it. Narrow, crowded, restricted, hard-pressed, tough and unpopular. Jesus says, actually, this is not a state of condemnation. This is not trying to be exclusive for exclusive sake. Actually, I'm, only the, I'm the only one who has the power to deal with the sin issue and the death issue and the forgiveness issue and the restoration issue. And the, Listen, I'm just saying I have the goods and no one else actually has the goods. So if you want that, there's only one door and one gate and it's actually available to all, but you have to come through me. As one rightly said, true discipleship is a minority religion. Who's the narrow gate? Who's the only door? Who's the shepherd all at once? Well, Jesus is. This is why Jesus came. Jesus is the only door. He's the only gate. And as we'll find out next week, amazingly, he's such a good shepherd. So here's my question. For you, again, who are genuinely seeking or, or skeptical or you have the title Christian in the sense that you come from Christian history or you're from another faith or you're mindful or you're spiritual or you're about self-help or you're all about education or philosophy, I'm not saying there's no inherent good in all of that, but there is not true, ongoing, lasting hope in any of it. What do you do with Jesus? Because you, you cannot be confronted by Jesus and his claims. You cannot put words in his mouth and make him who you want him to be. You have to take him at his face value. And he comes and he says, I'm God. I'm the only light. I'm the only one who can feed you. I'm the bread of life. I was the word who was with God and I am God. And oh, oh, by the way, I'm the gate. The most famous verse in the Bible is John 3.16. But most people don't keep reading. Uh, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever will believe on Jesus will not die, but have eternal life. Really, you will have it for real. Death will not win. Uh, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to actually save the world through him. God didn't send Jesus in the world to take the world out. He wants the world back. He wants relationship. But whoever believes in Jesus isn't condemned. Awesome. But whoever does not believe in Jesus stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. What do you do with Jesus? Will you be like a sheep that learns the new voice and follows him because he's a good person who's going to help you and profoundly change you and give you forgiveness? Or will you be like a stubborn sheep that will say, no, I will go my own path? That's why this whole series is, is given not only to our church, but to all of you watching online and all of you as guests because actually we truly have to face Jesus down and say, what do I do with him? Now, many of us here have said yes. Not because we're better, not because we're more moral, not because we're religious, because we went, oh my goodness, help me. And he did. What do we learn on this beautiful 
Sunday, summer morning? And, and what are we encouraged by? Well, here's the first thing. Maybe you didn't catch it. Let me do it again. Isn't it amazing that shepherds personally named every one of their sheep? Every shepherd knew every sheep by name. The scriptures are fundamentally clear that God knows you personally, intimately. And if you're a follower of Jesus, he will never forget you. You will never be lost. He knows you by name. You are not lost in the masses of millions who follow him. He knows you and he is watching you and he is with you personally. And not only are you known personally, which means, by the way, aloneness and loneliness doesn't win. But deeper than that, Jesus is our protector and our provider. Let me again quote what that young Arab shepherd said so long ago. When the light has gone out and all the sheep are inside, I lie in the open space and no sheep ever crosses my body and no one crosses my body to my sheep. I am the door. Why does that matter? Because that means that actually we are truly, in the eternal sense, honestly protected and owned and held. This is why Paul would write these words, we love quoting, but we need to hear once again today out of Romans 8. Jesus Christ who died, no more than that, was raised physically back to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Can I just stop right now? Jesus is praying. If you're a Christian, Jesus is praying for you right now. Is that comforting? His prayers are perfect. He's praying for you personally at this moment. And then Paul says, so what's going to separate us from the love of Christ? Trouble? Anyone got trouble in their life this week? So is that, no matter how bad the trouble is, is that going to separate you from the love? No. Hardship? No. Persecution? I mean, that's really serious. Jail time or losing your job because you're a Christian. In other countries, it's literally churches being burned down. Thrown at, is that? No. What about famine and nakedness or danger? What about physical violence? Can that separate us from the love of the gate? No. No, and all these things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. I'm convinced death or life is not going to separate us. I mean, this is why we're different. Nothing gets through the gate. And nothing allows us out except him. And Jesus does not let his sheep leave. He owns us and he loves us. So, for example, when we think about death, and we're all going to die, when we think about death, here's the good news. Death doesn't win. Right when you die, if you're a Christian, the very first thing that's going to happen is the gate is going to usher you into eternity and you're going to see your good shepherd. Very first thing. Life. All the trauma of life. It doesn't matter how much money you have. All the stuff we go through with family and life and jobs can't separate you from the love of God. It cannot happen. What about angels or demons? There's a lot of weird supernatural stuff. Anything? Nope. They're not stronger than the gate. What about my present situation, the future, or anything? No. Height, depth, anything else in all of creation? No. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So for us that are Christians... When we hear that Jesus is the light and the bread and the word and the gate, it's comfort. Because it means we're held, we're loved, we're protected, we know his voice. And what, is, what do good shepherds do? They lead us where? To good pasture. 
For others of us who have not embraced him, this message is conviction and struggle because it says that everything else you trust in actually doesn't have the power to do what it's claiming. So let's just take a moment to respond in two directions. Could you do that with me? Lord, number one, thank you that you're the gate. Thank you that you're the door. Thank you that actually you walked into our world and said all the religious stuff, though it was a good attempt, wasn't good enough. You called it for what it was. And some of us sitting right now need to say, oh my goodness, Jesus, I have never embraced you. I've made you what I want or I've rejected you. And you're like, oh, I need to walk through that door and that gate. Then just say this, Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. I'm a sheep who's walked his or her own way. I've trespassed, I've, I've fallen, and I can't get up, literally. Mercy. I need your forgiveness. I need your restoration. I, I need you to make me okay with God. I trust in you and you alone. I renounce everything I've trusted in. And I just say one name, Jesus, Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. And for the rest of us who have already said that, who are already in the sheep pen, who know his voice. Three things I pray. One, I pray that the voice of Jesus would grow in this church so people who walk with Jesus would hear him clearly. Number two, I pray for any person who feels that God does not see them and know them by name, even though they're Christians, that that would be broken today in Jesus' name. And they would know that God names them and loves them. And third of all, here's the last thing we pray. Lord, as a community... We're so thankful that you've made us your sheep and that we get to follow you. And thank you that nothing can separate us from what you've done and what you're going to do. Thank you that we do not worry like the world worries. Thank you that death doesn't win. Thank you that problems at home or in life at work, they're not stronger than the gate. Lord, continue to give us faith and strength that is unnatural. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.